Christianity has been called a slaughterhouse religion. Blood, blood, blood. We're always talking about blood. Or even worse, singing about it. You know, what would someone with no knowledge of Christianity think if they heard us singing about blood and inviting one another to partake of the blood of Christ? They would probably think what the early detractors of Christianity thought, that we're cannibals who eat flesh and drink blood. So why do we risk misunderstanding with all this emphasis on blood? If we're just talking about death, why don't we say it? Or use an even more socially acceptable euphemism for death. Couldn't we just say that Jesus passed away? And take a moment for silence to reflect on his passing in our service. Is it really necessary that we talk about blood? It seems so gruesome. You know, blood's repulsive. It's yucky. But yet blood is what we read about all through the Bible. At least in accurately translated Bibles that haven't taken out all references to blood in an attempt to make it more acceptable. We read about blood sacrifices all through the Old Testament and the blood of Christ in the New Testament. And Jesus specifically mentioned blood when establishing the communion service. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. So it appears that God would have us talk about blood. He wants the full, gruesome impact of a sacrificial death to hit us. He wants us to have to face the stark reality of what Jesus did for us. He didn't just fall asleep. He bled and died for us. But blood is more than just a symbol of death. It's also a symbol of life. Leviticus 17.11 tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we acknowledge that when we have a blood drive and ask you to give the gift of life. Because someone's life may very well depend upon your willingness to donate blood. In a similar fashion, our life, our eternal life, was dependent upon Jesus' willingness to give his blood on our behalf. Only his giving of blood wasn't a donation. It was a total sacrifice. So for us, the blood, the blood of Christ, isn't repulsive. It's actually... It's actually beautiful. We respond to it as a dying man would to a last-minute transfusion. Our life comes from that blood. And that blood was shed 
as the ultimate expression of love. So we're not repulsed by it. It's a picture of life and love for us. It's a reminder that our eternal life was made possible because God loved us enough to die for us. So we should not be hesitant to speak or sing of the blood of Christ. It's central to the message of God's word. And our author of Hebrews brought up the topic of blood in our passage for study just last week. He began by mentioning the role blood played in the Old Covenant and then pointed out that the blood of Christ does so much more than the blood of goats and bulls could ever do. In our text for today, he's going to go on to discuss in detail the importance of the blood, the death of Christ. And he begins by briefly pointing out its vast redeeming value. Hebrews 9:15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Through his death, Jesus became the mediator of a new covenant, but his death had redeeming value for those who had lived under the old covenant as well. Now, this one verse this one verse makes clear the centrality of Jesus' death in the scheme of redemption for all mankind. His death not only brought into being a new covenant, it fulfilled the promise of the old. Jesus' death took place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, as well as to make forgiveness possible for those living under the second. You know, many fail to realize that under the first covenant, sins weren't actually forgiven. They were merely atoned. And the word atonement, found only in the Old Testament, actually means to cover over. The Old Testament sacrifices atoned for sins. They covered them. They didn't really do away with them. They were still there. The primary New Testament word for forgiveness, however, literally means to send away. Jesus' sacrifice didn't merely atone for sins. It didn't merely cover them over. It sent them away. Now, theologically speaking, we do use the word atonement to refer to the reconciliation that has taken place between God and man, the at-one-ment that has been made possible by Christ. So it's not really wrong to sing of the atonement as we did this morning. But technically speaking, when something has been atoned, it's merely been covered up. Our sins, however, 
haven't been merely atoned. They haven't been merely covered. They have been washed away by the blood of Christ. And that is something the Old Testament sacrifices could never do. Our author will make that clear in chapter 10, verse 4, when he clearly states, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It could cover them, but it could not take them away. The entire Old Testament procedure for dealing with sin merely covered sins until such a time that an adequate sacrifice could be made to really get rid of them. And that sacrifice, of course, was the death of Christ. So when Christ died, he redeemed. The word means to buy out. He paid the price necessary to finally get rid of all the sins that had been covered under the first covenant. It's as if the sins committed under the law had been forgiven on credit. It's as if God said, I'll give you a procedure whereby your sins can be covered from my sight so I can fellowship with you for the time being. Only because I know those sins will be actually sent away, be gotten rid of when my son dies for you. And if you'll trust me enough to eventually get rid of your sins, and follow my instructions to keep them hidden from my sight, I'll go ahead and enter into a relationship with you. We must never forget, however, that the eternal inheritance promised to all those who have been called into the family of God is dependent upon the blood of Christ. No sins are forgiven apart from his sacrifice. His blood paid the price for all the sins committed under the first covenant and for all those that have been or will be committed under the second. No one, no one is forgiven outside the blood of Christ. Those in the Old or the New Testament. His death is central and is the key that brings salvation to all mankind, old or new covenant. Old or new covenant. His sacrifice is the only thing that has true redeeming value in God's sight. It's the only thing that can actually forgive sins. And his blood is something that has inaugurating value because it began something. Verses 16 through 20. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, the Greek word generally translated covenant in the New Testament 
is a word the Greeks also used to speak of a will. And since our author has mentioned our eternal inheritance in verse 15, he continues with that thought and uses the word in its sense as a will. He says if there's a will, there must be a death. So we shouldn't be surprised to discover that the new covenant is based on a death. And everyone knows that a will is only valid after the one who made it dies. And in essence, Jesus' covenant is in the form of a will. He said, in effect, my death is going to make available certain things to you. And if you'll agree to the terms of my will, they can be yours once I die. In that respect, the blood of Christ has inaugurating value. It brought into being what Christ said would be available after his death. And even the first covenant had been inaugurated with blood. After God had given his commandments to the people through Moses and had ordained the procedures whereby fellowship could be achieved with him, God had the people seal the agreement with blood. Not only did that picture the sacrifice that would be necessary to give that covenant eternal value, it also showed the seriousness of the covenant being inaugurated. It was a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. It's something no one can afford to take lightly, and blood forces us to take it seriously. So we shouldn't be surprised that the second covenant was inaugurated by blood also, the blood of Christ. And let's never forget that in God's eyes, blood has cleansing value. Verses 21 through 24. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. According to the law, nearly everything was cleansed with blood. From the tabernacle and its furnishings to the people themselves, everything was cleansed with blood. Now, obviously, the blood did not make things physically clean. <laughs> Actually, it stained them. We were just talking about this the other day in one of our studies. You know, we get this image of, of worship in the tabernacle and the temple as something beautiful, and we see pictures of gold and, and beautiful gowns and jewels. But everything... Everything there was splattered with blood. 
thousands of animals would be sacrificed in a very short period of time and their blood poured upon the altars and sprinkled on the people. That's a picture we don't see in our illustrated Bibles very often. It's not one we like to embrace. But blood has cleansing value. It made things ceremonially clean. It made them clean in God's eyes. Now, the reason God demanded that blood be used for cleansing becomes obvious when we realize that what makes a man unclean in God's eyes is his sin. It's not physical dirt. And the only thing that can affect forgiveness for those sins is the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. God, in his justice, demanded that the penalty for sin be paid. And the penalty he ordained for sin is death. But even if a man could pay that penalty himself, he'd find no forgiveness in life. So God arranged to pay the penalty for him. That meant that God would have to die. But an eternal spirit can't die. So part of God took on the form of man, lived the life of a man only without sin, and then died to pay the penalty for every other man's sins. And then, since he was actually God in the flesh, he could rise from the dead and ascend back to his proper station as part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead. And this is what Jesus did for us. And even before he did it, God knew what was going to be done. So he ordained a procedure of cleansing in the first covenant that required the blood of a sacrifice. This would help prepare mankind for the true sacrifice that would actually wash away sins. The blood sprinkled in the first covenant for ceremonial cleansing was a picture of what would later actually cleanse mankind, just as the tabernacle and its furnishings were pictures of the abode of God and access to him. So obviously the second covenant required more than simple ceremonial cleansing. Man was now actually being cleansed to enter the presence of God. So the actual sacrifice was needed. And it's only the blood of Christ that makes man clean enough to stand in the presence of God. <clears throat> Lastly, the author makes us aware of the lasting value of the blood of Christ. Verses 25 through 28. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, 
So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Every year the high priest had to go back into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. The sacrifices he offered were at best only temporary in their effectiveness. But Jesus' sacrifice was different. If it hadn't been, it would have been necessary for him to have sacrificed himself over and over again. And he could not have waited until 2,000 years ago to do so. If his sacrifice was no more effective than the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, his sacrifice couldn't have been retroactive. It couldn't have washed away the sins that were merely covered under the first covenant. He would have had to sacrifice himself right after the first sin in the Garden of Eden and then continue sacrificing himself as long as men sinned. But his sacrifice is different. It isn't only temporarily effective. It's eternally effective. He came once at the focal point of all history, and dealt with sin once and for all. He came to earth and lived the life of a man and died once, as do all men. And that one death was all that was needed. In that one act, he dealt with every sin that has ever been committed and that will ever be committed. He bore on himself the sins of the world. He paid the penalty for the sins of all who would trust in God to cleanse them. Therefore, his sacrifice, his blood, has eternal value. When he comes again... It won't be to make possible the forgiveness of sin. It will be to usher all those who are forgiven, all who are therefore longing for his return, to enter into the eternal presence of their heavenly Father. The blood of Christ has secured that hope for us. It has secured for us eternal life. So we speak and sing of it as if it were the most beautiful thing in existence. And indeed, it is. The blood of Christ brings all those who have trusted in God under the first or second covenant together in one redeemed family. It inaugurated for us a beautiful relationship with our Lord that begins while we are here on earth. It cleanses us from all our sins. And it keeps us clean until Christ returns to claim us as his own. All of this is ours because Christ shed his blood for us. And in faith, 
we asked him to wash us clean with that precious blood. So what about you this morning? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? If that sounds strange, if you haven't been listening, <laughs> it's only if we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb that we can come into the presence of our Heavenly Father. So we do talk about blood in church. We sing about blood in church. And we ceremonially allow ourselves to be cleansed in the blood of Christ. Now, our baptistry is not filled with blood, it's filled with water. But that water is not what cleanses us. What cleanses us is the blood of Christ into which we enter when we surrender to his lordship. And we ask him to wash us clean in the blood of the Lamb. If you've not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you have no access before the Heavenly Father. I'm sorry. No matter how good you are, no matter how faithful you are in worship, no matter how much you give, if you've not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you're unacceptable before your Creator. That's the bad news. The good news is God took on flesh and He shed His blood to wash you. And he invites you to be washed in his blood.